The Hamlet Podcast, episode 106. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. I have to start this week with an apology. The previous episode, number 105, had a big long gap between the theme music and the start of the episode, thanks to a computer update that made me have to change editing programmes. I won't bore you with the details, but rest assured that I've uploaded a revised, neater version of that same number 105 now that I've got the hang of the new software that I'm using. In that last episode, Hamlet was in the middle of an extended harangue against his mother when Polonius's shuffling behind the curtain alerted him to his presence and led to the elder statesman's demise. After a rather cursory few words over the old man's corpse, Hamlet returns to Gertrude and continues his takedown. He's told her to sit and listen and quit wringing her hands. She's asked what she can possibly have done for him to speak to her so rudely. Here's his response. Such an act that blurs the grace and blush of modesty, calls virtue hypocrite, takes off the rose from the fair forehead of an innocent love and sets a blister there, makes marriage vows as false as dicer's oaths, oh, such a deed as from the body of contraction plucks the very soul, and sweet religion makes a rhapsody of words. Heaven's face doth glow, yea, this solidity and compound mass with tristful visage, as against the doom, is thought-sick at the act. Hamlet's imagery here is quite extravagant. He's talking about Gertrude having married Claudius, but he doesn't expressly say so. He holds off from this, instead listing a variety of its consequences. He says that this act blurs the grace and blush of modesty. It smudges the very idea of the Queen's good character, the blushing modesty of a decent woman. As Shakespeare so often likes to do, he uses hendiadis here, the device of conveying one idea through two images. One through two is what hendiadis literally means, and so we have the grace and blush of modesty, even if they are no longer to be seen in Gertrude. Her marriage calls virtue hypocrite. It makes virtue meaningless, because she no longer displays any. And now Hamlet gets really rude, He says that Gertrude's act of taking this new husband takes off the rose from the fair forehead of an innocent love and sets a blister there. The idea he's describing is the branding of prostitutes, which had been suggested by Henry VIII in 1513, but never, it seems, was actually put into practice. The forehead was considered a clear index of one's state of mind, as mentioned by Claudius at the beginning of Act 3, Scene 3, and in many other places in Shakespeare, Hamlet is saying that the rose of goodness on her clear brow is replaced by this new marriage with a blister worthy of a branded prostitute. And he's only warming up. Next, he says that this union makes marriage vows as false as Dicer's oaths. She has betrayed the vows she made to Hamlet's father, and therefore her vows are as credible as the promises made by gamblers. Hamlet does seem happy enough to overlook the whole till death do us part segment of the marriage vows because in his view, oh, such a deed as from the body of contraction plucks the very soul and sweet religion makes a rhapsody of words. Her new marriage is so wicked that it separates the soul of marriage from its body. Here, contraction means contract or union, the agreements involved in arranging a marriage. But Gertrude hasn't just taken the soul out of marriage, she's turned sweet religion into a rhapsody of words. 
thanks to generations of composers from Liszt to Gershwin and from Rachmaninoff to Queen, we are favourably disposed to the idea of a rhapsody. But for Shakespeare, it meant a jumble of things, a confusion of words. And this is the only time he ever used the word rhapsody in any of his plays. According to Hamlet, Gertrude's marriage has made modesty and virtue meaningless, made her little better than a prostitute, plucked the soul from marriage and made religion meaningless. And he's not even finished yet. He now moves on to nature. Heaven's face doth glow. Yea, this solidity and compound mass, with tristful visage as against the doom, is thought-sick at the act. He's saying, the skies are glowing, and the whole world, this solidity and compound mass, with tristful visage, with a sad face, or heated, as it is in the quarto, is thought-sick at the act. He's saying that the whole world is sickened by her action, and indeed that the heavens are glowing, presumably red. These images are what the Bible says we should expect at the end of the world, as we turn our tristful visages against the doom. Hamlet is so worked up that he's saying her marriage is as bad and as dangerous as Armageddon. Dramatic as this may seem to us, we should be perhaps a little sympathetic. He has, after all, seen a very convincing ghost come back from the dead and reveal the crimes of the living, so he can be forgiven, perhaps, for imagining that Doomsday isn't far off. But throughout this catalogue, Gertrude still hasn't heard exactly which crime Hamlet means. And she says so. I me, what act that roars so loud and thunders in the index? What act is he talking about? What crime can she have committed that roars and thunders so much, even in its introduction? An index was printed at the beginning of Elizabethan books to list its contents or its qualities. Gertrude is gently reminding Hamlet that for all of his listing its consequences, he hasn't told her what he's on about. He will eventually, but in quite a roundabout way. He says, Look here, upon this picture, and on this, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. See what a grace was seated on this brow, Hyperion's curls, the front of Jove himself, an eye like Mars to threaten and command, a station like the herald Mercury, new lighted on a heaven-kissing hill, a combination and a form indeed, where every god did seem to set his seal, to give the world assurance of a man. This was your husband. Hamlet is forcing Gertrude to look at two pictures, one of Claudius and one of her first husband, his father. The counterfeit presentment of two brothers. It's always fascinating to watch how a production will stage this moment. It can be done with actual paintings, photographs, lockets, portraits, coins, and presumably nowadays in our image-saturated world, with cell phones. Given the recent regime change, it could be very interesting to see who has pride of place. Perhaps Claudius's portrait is now up on the wall, and old Hamlet has been taken down. A very successful version that I saw had Hamlet comparing his own locket, containing his father's image, with Gertrude's, which now contained that of her new husband. However it is staged, the important thing is that Hamlet can make a comparison between the two kings. He starts with his father. See, what a grace was seated on this brow. He starts again with the brow or the forehead. The grace of his father's brow is in direct contrast to his mother's that deserves the harlot's brand. But the comparison will really be with Claudius, of course. Hamlet describes his father as having attributes like a variety of mythological heroes and deities. 
It is no accident that he starts with Hyperion, who was mentioned all the way back in Act 1. There, Hamlet described his father as Hyperion, the great titan and indeed the father of the sun, and Claudius as a satyr, a drunken, sex-obsessed goat man. He starts here with Hyperion again, and the image echoes. Hyperion's curls, the front of Jove himself. Hamlet's father perhaps had Hyperion's curls in the front, or forehead, of Jove, or Jupiter himself, again with the forehead. He also has an eye like Mars to threaten and command. Mars was the god of war, so this is a useful aspect for a king to have. And he has, or had, a station like the Herald Mercury, new lighted on a heaven-kissing hill. This is a lovely image. Mercury was the messenger of the gods, and Hamlet compares his father's stature, or station, to the winged herald, new-lighted on a heaven-kissing hill. I suppose it's up to a given production whether or not they want to suggest any of this agility or grace in the ghost. Surely only the most athletic of the Greek gods had wings in their heels and could fly or land that gracefully on a mountaintop. In his father's painting, Hamlet sees a combination and a form indeed, where every god did seem to set his seal, to give the world assurance of a man. He's saying something like that all the gods collaborated in the creation of his father, each setting their seal on him or giving him their best attribute, so that his form could give the world assurance of a man. Early in the play, there were significant echoes of Shakespeare's recent Julius Caesar, and indeed there's another one here. After the death of Brutus, the noblest Roman of them all, Antony says, The elements mixed so well in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, This was a man. Likewise, Hamlet is saying that the gods, in making his father, made an example for all the world of what a man could be. And he then points out the obvious to his mother. This was your husband. The comparison will continue, and as you might imagine, Claudius does not come off well in Hamlet's eyes, but we will save all of that for the next episode. Thank you, as ever, for tuning in, and do be sure to like and subscribe or even leave some feedback if you're so inclined. Positive reviews on iTunes guarantee that more people can find our podcast and ensure its continued growth, so I really appreciate it when you do find the time. As ever, you'll find loads of supplementary information on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, as I'm sure you know by now, and I'll speak to you next time.